Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I think it sometimes doesn't pay to be connected to everything all the time. I think it's just that we believe that we, we think we're connected and we're not in a way. We, what we do is we go round and round in circles. I think it's a rabbit hole. I've learned personally to protect myself in the evening. And I, I reach a time where I just shut everything down. And, and there's, there's peace in it. I don't need to know what Trump said right now. I, it's still going to be there in the morning. And I disconnected from it. And there's wonder in that. What is manliness and can open water swimming reduce stress and anxiety? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm coming to you live from the West Cork Literary Festival on beautiful Bantry Bay, where the likes of Zadie Smith, Liz Nugent, Deborah Levy, Louise O'Neill, Bernard McLafferty, Alan Jenkins, Richard Beard and the great Margaret Drabble gave a series of workshops, readings and talks in venues across the town. There was yoga on the lawn, festival swims, coffee and chat in Bantry House and lots, lots more. On Thursday evening, Irish novelist and short story writer Joseph O'Neill took to the stage at the Maritime Hotel. I nabbed Joseph just before his reading from his new collection of short stories, Good Trouble, published by Fourth Estate. Well, uh, I'm Joseph O'Neill and um, I'm holding a copy of Good Trouble, which is my first collection of short stories. Um, I've also written, I think, hold on, four novels and a uh, family history called Blood Dark Track, which actually um, is, 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 is half devoted to my uh, Irish grandfather. Joseph, really well done on Good Trouble. It's um, a very amusing piece of writing, uh, very comical in parts, um, very um, very probing on society and nature of relationships in other parts. Um, I might ask you a little bit about the title for um, the collection, Good Trouble. It comes from um, John Lewis there yeah. a couple of years ago. He asked uh, students in a college to um, find a way to get in the way. It's an interesting take, isn't it? Yeah, John Lewis is the civil rights hero um, in the USA, where I live now. And um, he, if you look at all those pictures of Martin Luther King, there's always a, in the corner of the uh, photograph, you'll also see a picture of the young John Lewis, who was the leader of the student uh, branch of, 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 of the uh, civil rights movement. And, um, and he had this catchphrase, and still does. Uh, he's still going strong. And that is good trouble. And he was he was his thing was you you know the people should look to get into good trouble, which is what he did. You know he was getting arrested and um, and um, and and you know uh, resisting resisting the injustices of his time, uh, a, a resistance which continues, of course. And um, and so I, I like that phrase because some of these stories have this political contemporary sort of political. Um, dimension to them I suppose and at least in my mind and I also liked it because it's sort of because of all the connotations and the sort of you know good trouble you know people having trouble being good people um, I suppose um, sort of enjoying being in trouble in some way. So what's politics all about to you and you think it could be argued such today it's not quite the moral endeavour it possibly set out to be? Well, I mean, I, I mean, I'm just I've, I've I've lived in the USA now since '98, so I've lived there longer than I've lived anywhere else, and so my sense of politics is 
derived from that, from watching American politics. <laughs> and um, they have a very um, kind of mixed, it's a very mixed scene over there. Uh, the main the main problem being that the politicians are essentially um, funded by private interests and so are not really public servants uh, in, in, um, and, and are very often using their power to sort of you know promote the interests of their of the people who fund their political life their political careers and at the same time you also have this you know sort of radical um, and sort of interesting and I suppose alarming as well, um, kind of liberalism um, in in uh, in the USA, which is so globally influential now. Your opening story, pardon Edward Snowden, is a very amusing piece of writing, and um, it kind of unpacks, I suppose, the idea of a poem as a petition. And one of the characters in um, in in the stories linked. Um, the um, idea of Bob Dylan getting the Nobel Prize for Literature as part of the Trump phenomenon and linked the two. It made me laugh so much. And I'm just wondering, what were you trying to get at there? Well, that story is about, is, 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 is a, the, the main character in that story is a, is a poet, an American poet who's asked to sign a petition to pardon Edward Snowden. And the petition is supposedly um, for poets to sign, only poets, and it's written in verse. And he sort of gets quite sort of he gets into this rather comic tangle about the whole business and it's because the petition is, is is such a bad poem in his in his opinion and he discusses it with his friend and he relates it as you say to bob dylan they somehow get onto that subject and you know i i i, I have to say that i do think that um if if if, if i'm pressed to take an issue on a stand on this issue which i'm no which i'm not but um, I, my sympathies are with the poets because i remember that at the time the thing about the Dylan Nobel Prize was that he, he was, and this is discussed in the story, is that they were calling him a poet. They weren't calling him a, a songwriter, a genius songwriter, which everyone would agree with. Yeah. They were calling him a genius poet. And I think there were quite a few uh, real poets, I can, if I can put it that way, who who sort of uh, um, weren't, weren't thrilled about that. You have an hilarious story called The Referee where there's a guy called Rob, I think, and he's trying to um, get a reference from either ex-girlfriends, um, old flatmates, old working colleagues. And he's desperately and um, trying to um, contact everyone he knows and most people aren't too pushed about him. And um, it's an extraordinary piece of writing and I'm sure everyone can relate to it, um, having it either a bad uh, flatmate or very uncomfortable circumstances with somebody that puts them in a position where they don't want to give a reference. But I was just wondering, if you were to give a reference for yourself, where, where would you go? If I, was to, if I, if I were to get a re- ask for a reference? Well, I mean, I, funny enough, I got this. That story is about, if I may answer that in a roundabout way, that story is about a guy who's just gotten divorced in, and lives on the West Coast, comes back to New York and needs a reference just to live somewhere. The building won't let him in without reference. And he's sort of scratched. He doesn't really know anyone. And, um, and he's having a hard time, as you say, you know, getting anyone to just, to just say he's an okay human being. And I feel like that sort of quest for a reference is a sort of slightly kind of comic, dramatic version of that sort of reassurance we all need, you know, that we're, not, we're actually okay. That you know, uh, having you know, you know, when we're not, when we're fine. Um, where would I go for a reference? Yeah. I I don't know. I I usually would ask for. Uh, um, I'd sort of try and find a friend who's got a job, and so and you can write <laughs> it on. You know, on 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 sort of official paper or something. 
and um, and you know. Um, but actually, you know, to be honest, that particular story was inspired by my own experience of getting a, re a reference. I managed to get the references, but some of them were so bizarre. And so sort of the people, I, I mean, that was something I thought about writing. You know, some of them just started just writing completely irrelevant stuff about themselves, you know. Uh, and um, it, you'd be amazed at how, um, actually maybe you wouldn't be amazed at how... Um, you know, complicated it can be just to get somebody to say, "This is a." Per I mean, this is just an absolutely fine person. You know, you sh you should be lucky to have him in your building. That's quite. A, it's sort of. It's people are sort of. It's such a weird situation to be asked to write a reference for somebody. You know, to summarise their good qualities. Yeah. But also within that, does any real reference really represent the truth? Well, no, I mean, that's, that's the thing. I mean, if someone says to you, can you write for, vouch for me as a human being, so, you know, for the purposes of living in the building, I mean, I mean, it's just such a weird request, yeah. really. I think my favourite um, story in the whole collection is a poltroon husband, and um, it made me laugh so much. And um, it's basically a uh, husband and wife are in a, um, uh, they have a, I suppose they're best described as their now retirement house. Yeah. And uh, they're surrounded by forests and it's all very idyllic. And the wife hears some unusual sounds in the night. And the husband has what he what is described as a mental whiteout. And uh, you give a whole range of different kind of psychological states, which is really quite remarkable on why he had was, um, I suppose, failure to act. And that can be quite catastrophic in relationships. And it got me thinking that, you know, what makes for a good marriage? And, you know, there's obviously love is involved. Friendship is involved and all of those wonderful things. But possibly when it comes down to it, it's all about solidarity. Yeah. I mean, this is it's just as this, this story, actually, the idea for the story came from a Henry James idea, which Henry James was uh, had kept a notebook of stories, ideas, and he never wrote half, half of them. He never got around to finishing. So I, I, borrow, I was asked to look at these ideas for an anthology, and I chose this one. And, he, and the uh, the idea being, you know, the husband who's so cowardly, I suppose, yeah. that he doesn't investigate the noises, and then it's the wife who must go down and investigate the noises. I mean, I mean um, and Henry James thought you couldn't write this story from the point of view of the husband because it was just so appalling, um, this sort of what he called this, he used the word poltroon, this kind of poltroonism, yeah. this, um, that it just it, readers wouldn't tolerate being in the presence of such a point of view. But I wrote it from his point of view. And, um, and they have a happy marriage, as mm. you say, and they seem to have solved the question of marriage. In fact, the, the whole business is, the whole story is they seem to have solved it all. They've still got their, they're, they're in semi-retirement, they've got this perfect house, and then there's this noise in the night, and it, and it, and she's the what the wife is the one who must investigate, and they, um, um, and, and it's sort of funny, but it does put their, it does put their marriage, under a, under this you know, rather old-fashioned, I suppose kind of pressure you know because I mean it's not often that the vestigial courage that I mean men don't need to be courageous anymore you know I mean when you know the so-called like you know we didn't we never we hardly ever good fight in wars like it would used to be common and that sort of idea of masculine you know the, the, the man looking after the woman in, in a situation of danger yeah. you know doesn't really arise very much but suddenly now it does and this kind of couple is discovers they learn something about each other 
But it's a very interesting space for the reader because you ask yourself in your own life, what would you do? And also in terms of what you're willing to put up with and how um, um, our protagonist wriggles out of his responsibilities and how he kind of sells it to himself. And then he sits within his unease within the relationship and um, there's an unspoken unease. It's a very interesting space, but I suppose all of us in our relationships, we've been in that, we've asked ourselves that question of solidarity. And I suppose in in these times when we talk about gender parity and equality and everything, but ultimately part of love is about courage and protection and solidarity. It is, um, but it's also about acceptance. And um, I feel like the, 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 uh, the sort of challenge for the wife in this case is, is to accept the fact that her husband is, um, is, 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 you know, is, has failed this test um, of, of kind of doing what, you know, his masculine role would um, sort of ex- would lead people to expect him to do. There's a great feeling of unease, frustration, and general uncomfortability running through all the stories. And, you know, you're tackling questions of identity. Um, you're looking at questions in relation to masculinity, relationships, intimacy, fatherhood. But within that percolated all through the stories is this frustration and this anxiety. Mm. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I mean, I do feel like um, I do feel like one thing I c- um, a, a male writer can write about, um, just as women writers are now sort of, as it were, being slightly more proactive about claiming certain viewpoints, claiming certain standpoints, claiming the right to say certain things. Um, you know, what one thing men can write about is the sort of is the flip side of that. You know, it's 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 this idea of um, which has all which has such political resonance now, particularly with the rise of this hyper aggressive kind of right sort of neo fascist sort of you know. Uh, masculinist extra ultra hyper masculinist kind of you know political sort of movement across the world um is this question of what is the what is the uh, status of masculinity now speaking for myself i grew up in a family where the women were very very strong and i was never under any sort of particular pressure as i recall to sort of you know to prove myself as a man this whole idea of being a man wouldn't have been in the language you know of that my that my family would have used particularly, but I guess the culture would have would have um, would have n- n- communicated that particular expectation to me, and um, I do feel that um, it's a sort of very interesting and very sort of funny sort of area of of, of you know uh, of, of movement in society now, where the, where men are no longer um, you know they're no longer sort of it's that sort of joke like what are they actually for? I mean, there used to be this absolute sort of value in in men, a problematic value, obviously, but an absolute value, which is that they were physically stronger, and that that physical strength was very, very essential, you know, in the history of human beings. To sort of, um, but that's that's gone now for certainly for the bourgeoisie, for the middle classes, and it's sort of left this. And then, and meanwhile, there's been this kind of emancipation for women. Yeah. Surplus to requirement, as they say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a sort. There is definitely. Well, I, I don't think men are completely surplus to requirements. <laughs> I mean, they're still sort of vaguely or sort of needed, yeah. but um, but definitely the sort of the sort of standing and um, the sort of cultural capital yeah. that men have yeah. has changed dramatically, and it's sort of uh, it's funny, really. Where did you get the idea for the death of Billy Joel? Um, 
that's a story which concerns four guys um, who go off to Florida. One of them is having uh, is celebrating his 40th birthday, and they decide to mark it by playing golf together. And um, oh, that's right. I'm just trying to remember the story actually. And then and then and then of course and then at a certain point they come the and our sort of hero, the guy whose birthday it is, mishears something on the radio, and. He thinks that the death, or see something on the TV. That's right. He thinks that he thinks that Billy Joel has died, and then the whole weekend is is spent with the guys, chatting. You know, on the footing that Billy Joel is now dead, but in fact he isn't dead. He's just got remarried, yeah. and uh, and it's this sort of idea. Um, that I don't know what the idea is there. Just a funny idea. Meanwhile, the, the the men themselves are trying. They're sort of they're turning forty. They're having their midlife moment, or their midlife decade. And they're sort of trying to come to terms with mortality and change and, and marriage as well. And, um, you know... And they're all proving points and getting very touchy about cash. And there's this oh, yeah. oh, tremendous unease. Yeah. I got this sort of pettiness about cash. Yeah. They're always like, who's, who's, you know, you paid for the valet yeah. parking. I will set that off against the toll. They're always yeah. scrambling. But I got that from my experience of having college friends in England. Right. To this day, if I hang out with these with my friends, they'll be sort of mentally totting up um, in a way that is kind of funny and sort of alarming. Very off-putting, though, isn't it? But I suppose that's what happens. Well, it does to these characters, and, and it, I mean, it does. I mean, I do feel like sort of if you have friends from 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 an early age when you were all broke together, and part of the banter was all about you know whose round is it and and this that and the other. Then it might be that the, that that persists. But funny enough, I was walking. Um, I was walking yesterday, actually, in New York City before I flew over, and I saw a big poster for Billy Joel, who's but who's sold out Madison Square Gardens over a hundred times, which is some sort of world record. And so the piano man is still going strong. So will you be sending him a copy of the book? <laughs> I don't. I, I don't. I didn't. Nobody wants to read about their death. Tell me, how did you decide within these stories um, to keep them as a short story? Because there's at least three or four that um, are very novelistic. So I'm just wondering, how did you decide to commit to an idea to see it through the short story, which takes a lot of craft and a lot of hard work. And I'm sure isn't miracled over um, a few hours that you could be chipping away at a couple of weeks at some of these stories. But I'm just wondering, how did you decide to commit to that? Well, I ask myself the question, how do I ever decide to commit to writing a novel? I mean, the short story is such a sort of powerful it's a form, which I, which is more and more sort of of interest to me. Um, it does, you can do so much in a story, and you can write it. You know, it doesn't take a, a five-year bet, or in my case, which is what it usually takes me to write a novel, five or six years, of um, on, and, you know... Um, so, so, so I just sort of I, I have the uh, just to, if I can answer your question this way, you know why write a novel? That's the sort of question that uh, that occurs to me. Obviously, there are good reasons to write novels, but um, for example, well, I mean they can do things that short stories can't do. Um, but I'm so interested in the kind of contained power of the short story. I mean they feel more like poems. They sort of a novel is something you can sort of read and pass the time with, but the short stories, particularly, I hope hopefully these sort of force the reader into a sort of interpretive yeah. moment. Is that what what just happened? What is that story about? Yeah, it forces the reader into um, such there's such punch to short stories that you automatically reflect because you've you've grasped the idea and you're left with the idea. Yeah, and it's also manageable. I mean. Mm. 
you know, I, I th some of these stories are a little bit enigmatic, and um, I like that. I like the idea of, of, of the sort of drawing the reader into a kind of, um, into that sort of collaboration with the text. One of the stories called Goose um, is where a guy is going to um, to Italy um, and his friend is getting married for the second time and um, it's a rather elaborate wedding. And he goes into an internet cafe and um, he clicks on something and he sees um, there's a story about um, a skeleton has been discovered mm. and he pitches out a question and the question is something on the lines of that um, there's these body skeletons are found in an embrace of sorts. Yeah. And he asks himself, could he live with somebody or could he be in this embrace with somebody for 5,000 years? Who could you embrace? Yeah. It's a very interesting thought experiment, isn't it? Well, I actually saw that, and it's, that's how some of these stories. Some of these, like, I'll see something interesting, like skeletons found in, in locked in an embrace. Five, you know, they've been there for five thousand years. And the article, then, like in the classic clickbait way, would say, "Who would you like to be in, in, in buried with for five thousand years?" And um, you know, and so, um, so I used that. I used that my own experience of encountering this strange story. And um, and he sort of he says to himself, well, I guess that would be my wife, and I guess it's going to start happening quite soon. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So the whole romance of the sort of the sort of romantic kind of excitement about these skeletons, you know, is, you know, when, on further reflection, maybe a little sort of you know predictable, really. Yeah. So lastly, what is the hope with this collection? Because there are a very interesting range of stories probing at different aspects of political life, gender identity, a whole lot of different things, race relations and so on. So I'm just wondering what's the hope and what you want the reader to reflect upon? You know, you write these stories one at a time and um, I don't think, you. I mean, I didn't, I, 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 this collection exists actually essentially because I reached a certain number of stories that were capable of being collected in one book. And I'm only now starting to sort of, as it were, read, approach these stories as, as, as a reader of this book would, which is as, as a collection. And um, I don't know what my hope is. My hope is that people enjoy it and um, also sort of appreciate um, the sort of, I mean, this is, I think, asking a lot, but appreciate the sort of the craft of it and, and how, with the various decisions that are made to produce the you know these little moments in the story was Irish novelist and short story writer Joseph O'Neill. Good Trouble is published by Fourth Estate and retails for just under €16 Euros in hardback. On 
Wednesday morning, British journalist, ghostwriter and memorist Alexandra Hemmingsley gave a hugely entertaining talk at Bantry House on her inspiring book Leap In, A Woman, Some Waves and The Will to Swim. I joined Alex for a quick dip at Abbey Strand on Bantry Bay. Hi, my name is Alexandra Hemmingsley and I'm here in Bantry Bay for The Swim. I am author of Running Like a Girl, which came out in 2013, which was my memoir about being a terrible runner and doing it anyway. And my latest book is Leap In, uh, which is about how I conquered my fear of the water and swimming and learnt to uh, love and depend on, to some degree, uh, swimming in the sea and outdoor. Alex, really well done in your talk today in Bantry House and, um, and there were so many interesting questions from the audience. It was, re- it was a really interesting dynamic. When I say the word swimming or getting in for a swim, what does that all mean to you? Um, I suppose I think of swimming outdoor when you just say the word swimming because that's what I do doesn't mean it's the only valid way to do it. Yeah, getting in for a swim, I think of uh, sort of engaging with nature and an opportunity to clear my head rather than just simply doing my half an hour of exercise for today. (laughs) You said something very interesting in the talk. Um, You said swimming is all about adaptability and it's also about trust. Yes. Um, I mean, less so if you are someone who just loves that hour in the morning to go and do your laps in the pool. But swimming outdoor is definitely about adaptability. What it taught me was that just going at it, oh, it worked last time and I'm trying really hard, so why isn't it working now? It's not a valid, uh, it's not a practical way to swim. In, in the sea, you need to work out what the tides are doing, how the water's moving, how you're feeling, what the weather's been like the day before. And that's kind of how life is you can't just turn up for a meeting and give the same answers that you gave last week because it worked last week you need to be able to assess and adapt and have uh, have the confidence in yourself to maybe surrender a little bit and be a bit different or try something else can we talk about leaping is it fair to describe the book as a memoir of sorts yeah, absolutely. Uh, like Running Like a Girl, my other book, which was about running, um, it's sort of 75% memoir. Um, and then there's a bit at the back with the sort of, I didn't want to tell everyone, oh, I did this and I did that, and then not give them somewhere to head off next. So there's sort of everything you want to know about kit or basics of what front crawl is and a little potted history and yeah. things like that. So You give some very good um, uh, recommendations as to reads and there's some very good other swimming mm. books in the book yeah swimming has uh, wonderful literature significantly better than running I think there's a real heritage of beautiful swimming books and there's um, been a, a sort of crop of, of swimming memoirs the last year or so which has been lovely when I when running like a girl came out no one else was doing anything like it and then I've spent the last 18 months doing events and talks and festivals with a group of really wonderful people there's Jenny Landreth's book swell Jo Minahane's book float um, Jessica Lee's book Turning they're all really beautiful memoirs about water and swimming Why do you think so many people have a huge fear about swimming in the open water? What, what is it? Now I know today we're here down in Bantry and there's been lots of jellyfish as we were swimming mm. so a few people were worried they would get stung but why do you think there is that real fear out there? Well it's totally reasonable it's it's um, 
an absolutely basic survival mechanism to feel anxious about putting your face into water which renders you unable to breathe and also unless you're in the clearest of water you can't see what you're coming up against and so you're you're effectively stopping yourself from breathing which is a primary function of survival and from knowing where you're going which is also an essential this is a health and safety requirement so I feel like too many people feel like they're somehow bad or lesser for being afraid of the water but you should it's not necessarily just fear it's respect that you are not going to be able to beat the ocean it's learning the adaptability and the respect and the um, practical tips for your well-being it's not a matter of getting rid of the fear. Um, You went for swimming lessons and uh, it was at the start of the book and um, your coach said to you just relax and um, (laughs) it sounds so simple and so basic but it can be a very scary thing to manage your breath in water. There's absolutely nothing less relaxing than being told just relax. It's what happens at the beginning of the book with the swimming lessons and it's what happens towards the end of the book when I start doing IVF. You're told with swimming and with IVF, if you can just relax, it will work. It will be so much easier, which is the worst thing to be told because you're then putting pressure on the act of relaxation. At least if you just relax because you're feeling relaxed, you're truly relaxing. If you're relaxing, because you think it's the key to achieving something it's by definition not relaxing (laughs) so it's yeah you have to untangle that and learn it might not be relaxing at first it might be a couple of months of feeling really scared and nervous before your swimming lesson Mm. just the same as you might be scared of needles or treatment or whatever with IVF you have to embrace the fact that something's scary because to a degree things that are scary are often the things that are most worth doing because you're living life you're at your fullest do you think it has liberated you in some way to be able to conquer a fear of the open water and then um to 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 swim so calmly yeah it's been completely liberating because it's not just taught me about swimming and water which is feel it fit has that in itself has felt like having an an extra door opened to me and my whole new room in my house as it were but also it's taught me that I have that adaptability with other fears that um, other challenges can be met because I was so scared of the swimming in the water and to have worked a way around that knows that not just that I can swim but that I can work a way around a problem which has been a gift. Some people will be very um, concerned about some of the safety factors related to um, um, open water swimming so can you talk me through some tips that you may have? Well you you should have safety factors it, learning to not be terrified of swimming doesn't mean disregarding safety you you shouldn't get in cold water if you're not used to it you should acclimatize over months and even then probably not just jump straight in and you should know what the tide is doing and you should know whether you're swimming in an area where there are jellyfish and you should check these things but that's just the same as you should you know educate yourself with a view to getting a job or check the road before you cross it it doesn't mean don't do it (laughs) just because you um, need to make some basic precautions before doing something because there's a potential danger doesn't mean that the thing in itself is undoable presumably you're wearing a wetsuit though sometimes are you certainly in wintertime no I don't I used to but now I don't I acclimatized I I swam uh, three summers now without a wetsuit and one of those I was pregnant for which I was significantly warmer for (laughs) a bit more insulated 
You said something very interesting. You said that, you know, when people are trying to climatise their bodies to cold water, and especially around Ireland where we, the sea can be very cold in winter, you said that you have to go in gradually. Mm. And this, you know, um, I suppose it gives your uh, core an indicator to, to, to absorb the water, so to speak, that it isn't such a body shock. Yes. When you get in the water, um, in cold water, the uh, blood vessels will constrict to move blood to your core body to keep your vital organs warm um, to keep you alive and that in turn will make your hands and feet much colder quicker that's why you get your extremities feel cold first because the blood's been actively moved away and that's it makes you feel cold but you should in a way feel proud because that is your body working perfectly to keep you alive what you shouldn't do is jump in unacclimatized because that constriction will put enormous pressure on your heart in an instant so you need to get in slowly breathing out exhaling slowly to keep your heart rate as low and steady as possible while that constriction and change happens and then it's then it is much more doable i mean you have to be careful about how long you spend in the water because it's basic physics that you, the water will cool you down faster than you will warm the water up because the water is a lot bigger than you. <laughs> you swam a full five kilometres over to Ithaca, wasn't it? As part yes. of the as part of the the writing of the book, it was yes. one of the journeys that the book takes. And um, I know that you uh, you said earlier that you were a big fan of Homer's The Odyssey, and you mm-hmm. always wanted to be the adventurer like Odysseus. Can you talk me through that? Yeah, I read it. I, I read classics at university, and I was always obsessed by uh, Odysseus as a sort of late teenager and in my early 20s and then time passed and I'd read more and read around it and then I sort of started to think well Penelope was just at home I I want to be Odysseus I want to be my own hero not sit at home and wait for a hero and my my dad was in the forces and um, so we moved around always in my childhood I didn't come from one place